It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. I'm sitting here looking at a political headline on President Biden's speech to Congress last night, and it's truly remarkable. Biden just gave the most ideologically ambitious speech of any Democratic president in generations. But beyond the words themselves, it's in like World War III sized type, you know, huge letters, four lines across the top of the homepage. I mean, political never does that. And so that, I think, gives you an indication about how excited the media were about this speech. I'll come back to the political piece and lots of other observations. And also, we got to get to Rudy on the podcast. You know, a couple hours after I signed off yesterday, the raid on Rudy Giuliani's uh, Manhattan home and uh, office, uh, uh, incredible story. Uh, and I, my first reaction was, damn, I wish that had happened in the morning so I could have talked about it. All right. So I watched the speech. I have a column up today about it. Um, let's start with this. You got to do the theater criticism first, right? Okay. So Joe Biden is not a great orator. He's never claimed to be a great orator. And in fact, at times, he dropped his voice to a near whisper and he just has, you know, he's a plain spoken guy who gave a plain spoken speech. The speech didn't soar. It was not designed. There was no, you know, Ronald Reagan shining city on a hill. It was just not that kind of speech. And maybe Biden is not that kind of president. It was more like, folks, we can do this. We can do this if we work together. The United States of America, if we work together, there's nothing that we can't accomplish. But look, we got to do it. We got to get serious. We got to talk about it. We got to debate it. Um, and, you know, in his own way, it's effective because it's Joe Biden. It's the real Joe Biden. Very authentic. But at the same time, you know, early on in the speech, um, he had these sweeping themes, uh, a lot of superlatives in there. So, for example, he talked about, and of course he had to talk about, the attack on the very building he was in less than four months earlier, calling that the worst attack on our democracy since the Civil War. He said just 100 days ago, because I guess today is the 100th day or it's around now, uh, America's house was on fire. A little reference to the Trump administration there. He said, America, go get vaccinated. He vowed to cut childhood poverty in half and cancer as we know it. We've been listening to the war on cancer for generations now, and I would like to see more progress. Largest jobs plan since World War II. Uh, he talked about a clear and present danger to our children's health. And I'm sitting here thinking, okay, like, who could be against all these noble goals? He just rattled them off, you know, and then he got to the laundry list. Clean water, child care, elderly home care, combating climate change, lower drug prices. And, you know, it's a cliche, the devil's in the details, but that's very much true. And also Joe Biden, you know, who is, you know, the guy from Scranton, uh, always cares about the middle class. He kept bringing it back to the middle class built this country, and he was explicit about it when he tried to please. There was a lot of micro-targeting in the speech. And by the way, every president does that to some degree as you tick off the constituency groups that you want to please. So, for example, labor. He called it a blue-collar blueprint, that they would be able to get these jobs. You didn't necessarily need a college degree. Right to unionize, a $15 minimum wage, family and medical leave. Um, and yet, when you add it all up, uh, the price tag, I mean, talk about sticker shock. If you include the $2 trillion that was spent on his very first uh, legislative package, the COVID Relief and Economic Aid Bill, we're talking here about a total of $6 trillion. Folks, that's real money. 
Six trillion dollars. The whole federal budget is four trillion dollars. So on top of the normal federal budget, what we will spend for this year, Joe Biden is talking about spending the equivalent of one and a half more federal budgets. And he did get around to saying how he'd pay for it. And he said, you know, uh, corporations haven't paid their fair share. He talked about the Trump tax cut. He's going to raise taxes on corporations. And he's going to raise taxes on people uh, earning more than $400,000 a year. And there was a, a, a clarification to Axios that that really does mean individuals. Because obviously, if it's a family and you have two earners making $400,000 a year, uh, that's still a lot of money. But it's a very different category and probably would would catch a lot more people. He wants to raise taxes, people making more than 400000 and that And look, these are popular proposals. Everybody wants to tax the rich. They want to tax somebody else. Everybody wants free stuff, right? Um, there were a couple of these SNAP polls. The CBS poll, and the SNAP polls are pretty unreliable. They're a snapshot in time. Uh, 85% approve of Biden's non-State of the Union, but it really was a State of the Union speech. Uh, CNN had something like uh, high 70s were more optimistic about the country after hearing this speech. I've never seen numbers like this, ever. So there's only two possibilities. Um, Despite, even with all the gushing by the pundits, this speech connected with broad swath of the country in ways that we, I've, I've just never seen anything like it. I mean, given the partisan divide, remember in the spate of polls that came out on Sunday, Fox News, Washington Post, ABC, and NBC, where Biden had, you know, 52, 53, and 54% approval rating. When you got to the partisan breakdown, it was like 95% among Democrats and about maybe 17% among Republicans. So that would truly uh, be remarkable. Uh, and there's one other thing that I mentioned. Some of these details were not in the speech, but they were in the leaked stories, which is, you know, two of the signature things. Uh, that Biden is proposing is free preschool for all three- and four-year-olds, free preschool, pre-kindergarten, and free community college uh, for anybody who graduates high school. So that's four years of free education that doesn't exist now. What he didn't say, though, is that there's no income testing for that. There's no income limit. There's no cap. So, you know, if you're a billionaire... If you have $100 million in a bank or if you are a, 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 just a millionaire, you get to send your kid to preschool and you don't got to pay for it. You get to send your kid to community college and you got to pay for it. I think that's nuts. You know, we're in the red. We're uh, in an era now of record-breaking deficits, of huge federal debt. We're living well beyond our means. And we can debate, you know, whether Biden has matched the politics in the moment saying let's spend trillions and trillions of dollars more. Um, but at least there should be some income limits on people who can afford to pay for this stuff themselves. They don't need to take taxpayers' dollars in order to do that. And, you know, for all of the comparisons the pundits are making, um, part, some of the, a lot of comparisons to FDR and the New Deal, a lot of comparisons to LBJ and the Great Society, uh, what some journalists are starting to point out is FDR in 1933 and Lyndon Johnson, when he was reelected on his own in 1965, had huge Democratic majorities in the House and the Senate. So they could ram through a lot of this stuff. Biden doesn't have that. He, he's, got, he's always one defection away, I'm talking to you, Joe Manchin, uh, of not being able to pass something in the Senate. 
and he's only got a five-vote uh, margin uh, among Democrats in Nancy Pelosi's House. So the idea that $4 trillion in spending is going to pass, probably wishful thinking. Maybe the argument is, you know, aim big, and if he gets $3 trillion or $2.5 trillion, he's still doing a lot more than even other Democratic presidents. So back to that political piece with the World War III headline. Uh, John Harris, you know, always has a smart analysis, says that, you know, uh, Biden's speech was couched in language that made it sound as if he wasn't making an ideological argument at all, but make no mistake that he was. Absolutely. Calling for trillions in new spending, a robust expansion of government's role in lots of areas of American life in ways that would have been impossible to contemplate in Barack Obama's presidency. And Harris is right on that. And then suddenly he's rattling off, you know, um, what we're going to do about immigration, pitch for the Dreamers, pitch for gun control, pitch for police reform. Um, you know, you're almost wondering, is he going to run out of time before he gets to mention all these things? And you know what happens with these speeches. Every department and agency weighs in, and the president himself doesn't want uh, journalists and commentators to write the next day. Well, he gave this whole speech, and he didn't mention X. So it always becomes a laundry list. This happened with Trump, it happened with Clinton, it happened with Obama, it happened with Bush. Um, you know, there is this sort of need to mention everything so that you don't get dinged on that. Okay, more from uh, Politico and Harris. Under a pose of guilelessness, Biden's speech was in fact infused with political guile. Oh, so this is the whole sort of like he just seems like uh, regular Joe, but actually he's brilliant strategist Joe. The agenda he promoted on free preschool and community college to subsidize the shift to a low-carbon economy. Sure, there's a lot of climate change in this speech as well. To fund a massive way of new public works construction by taxing the very wealthy represented years of pent-up demand by progressives. But much of the money would be spent in ways designed to break up the Trump coalition, which was powered heavily by middle and lower middle-class whites who don't have college degrees. Um, And so, in other words, Biden is saying... I want those people back. I want them back in the Democratic fold. Some of those people voted for Obama, and then they voted for Donald Trump. So you want to give them stuff, and that is absolutely a crucial thing. Uh, for most of his half-century in government, uh, Biden's been operating in a climate where Democrats of his generally centrist ilk, uh, says Politico, had to practice defensive politics. They knew that the union movement that had been the foundation of the old Democratic coalition was weakening, and it's its weakest point probably ever right now. Um, so they had to oh, pitch everything to the middle class and not be overly concerned with helping the poor. But what about the working class? Uh, many of whom, whose members are, you know, barely able to make ends meet, who are one lost paycheck away from a disaster. Okay, Dan Balls in the Washington Post. The most dramatic shift in federal economic and social welfare policy since Ronald Reagan was elected 40 years ago. And let me just stop there and say, yeah, I'm thinking a lot about the Reagan Democrats. You know, Ronald Reagan beats Jimmy Carter for the whole campaign. Uh, he was seen as this, you know, former movie actor. Wasn't really, no serious chance that he was going to win. And then he did win. And in fact, he won. Uh, the, the, election, the electorate broke for Reagan. And he won in kind of a landslide in 1980. And he came along and basically said, you know, the one line I remember from, from his first speech, if it wasn't an inaugural speech, it was one of his early speeches, and that was, uh, government is not the solution, government is the problem. And he didn't get everything he wanted, and he cut taxes, and he tried to cut spending, but a lot of that got added back, 
uh, in his second year in office. But nevertheless, he had a whole different way of looking at what he saw as a bloated federal government. And it is true, for 40 years now, uh, the debate has taken place kind of on Reagan's terms. Bill Clinton comes along, 1993, uh, the era of big government is over. And here's Joe Biden, he doesn't use these words, but he says the era of big government is back. We're going to spend trillions and trillions of dollars. Uh, this was interesting. Uh, Ball's picking up on the president's line about, for too long we have failed to use the most important word when it comes to meeting the climate crisis, jobs. Jobs. For me, when I think about climate change, I think jobs. And that's a way to sell something that's kind of seen as an issue that's really popular among the progressive elites. Uh, but he's going to try to turn it into a, a jobs program. By the way, there'll be a lot of lost jobs in the oil and gas industry if Biden gets even half of what he wants. Uh, but it's smart politics to reframe it as jobs. Uh, an appeal for big and bold action, says Dan Bowles, described in the most workaday rhetoric and by a leader whose demeanor and temperament are the very opposite of his predecessor, Donald Trump. And then Bowles makes a point, as some other journalists have, well, you know, Biden has these razor-thin majorities um, on the Hill, and yet he's pushing the politics of redistribution. Now, that used to be a dirty word in politics, redistribution. That meant, and there were, po- there were headlines today elsewhere, uh, Biden as Robin Hood, uh, I think one headline called him Biden Hood, Take from the rich and give to the poor. That's what Robin Hood did, right? The problem is that was political poison for decades, for decades since President Reagan. Because you have all these people in the middle and they're like, why why do I have to pay these high taxes and see my hard-earned money Go to people who, you know, whatever you want to say about the poor, the less fortunate than I, maybe they don't work as hard. I mean, you know all of the um, attacks on people who get welfare. Fortunately, you know, I don't think we are as denigrating. You know, Ronald Reagan used to talk about welfare queens riding around in, in Cadillacs, and it was effective class politics. It worked. Whether it reflects reality or not, um, it was Bill Clinton who with Newt Gingrich pushed through welfare reform. But now Biden really is talking about redistributing, taking money from corporations, which, who, which admittedly did very well in the Trump years, taking money from the over 400,000 set, and especially people over a million who will have their capital gains rate uh, increased, and giving it, oh, Biden would say, well, but it also goes to the middle class and the working class. It's not just the poor. Um, and so that's the rhetorical argument. Is it trickle-down economics? Biden uh, is strongly opposed to that. That's a phrase that reminds me of, for example, when George H.W. Bush ran against Ronald Reagan in 1980, he talked about voodoo economics. Because that whole phrase, trickle-down economics, this was, Ronald Reagan pioneered this um, based on a guy named Arthur Laffer, conservative economist who supposedly drew this on a napkin at a meal in a restaurant. And the, the uh, Republican point of view has always been, if we get the economy uh, really roaring, then the rising tide lifts all boats. And the Democratic view has always been, um, trickle-down doesn't work, it just makes the rich richer, it makes corporations more well-off, and it, it barely trickles down to the middle, let alone the lower classes. And that's been the debate in American government, really, since Lyndon Johnson and the Great Society. All right, New York Times. Uh, Now, 100 days into his presidency, the headline was something like, Biden changes what it means to be a Democrat. 
Biden is driving the biggest expansion of American government in decades, an effort to use $6 trillion in federal spending to address social and economic challenges at a scale not seen in half a century. And it's true, you go back 50 years and you have Lyndon Johnson uh, passing Medicare, um, passing, you know, FDR did Social Security, Johnson did Medicare, he also did uh, housing, and he also did all those great society programs, construction programs, and all of that. Uh, For an establishment politician who cast his election campaign as a restoration of political norms, his record so far amounts to the kind of revolution that he said he would not pursue as president. And this is the key point, I think. Look, lots of uh, people have run for president, said they're going to do X. Turns out they try to do X, Y, and Z. And sometimes they overreach and get clobbered. But here's the thing. Joe Biden, what Joe Biden is proposing in this speech and in the series of speeches and in all his legislative proposals in just these hundred days is pretty radical stuff. Now, you may support it. It's got a lot of goodies. It mostly says to the middle class and the working class and the poor, other people pay for this stuff. But it is much farther to the left than he was promising as a candidate. Now, Donald Trump, obviously tried to remake government. He wanted to build the border wall. He wanted to get rid of Obamacare. He failed on that. Uh, He wanted to change the immigration debate. He certainly uh, succeeded in that. Uh, He wanted to... It's interesting. He wasn't a small government conservative. He wanted to preserve Medicare and Social Security. He repeatedly told me that in interviews uh, during 2016. But nevertheless, he uh, certainly changed the presidency in many, many ways. If Trump had pushed, had given a speech to Congress that was as far to the right as this Biden speech was to the left, the media would be going absolutely bonkers, saying this is terrible, this is bait and switch, he didn't say any of this stuff in the campaign, the government, this is too wrenching a change in American society. But for all of the proclamations here in the media reports about how radical this is, transformation, not in 50 years, all that stuff, The underlying tone is basically positive. It's like Joe Biden's a good guy. He wants to do good things for the country. And I don't have any doubt that he's sincere and that he is an empathetic person. There was a lot of empathy in his speech. That's Biden's calling card. But man, I mean, this stuff uh, is so expensive uh, and it would involve so many changes to American life that it is pretty radical. You can agree with it, you cannot agree with it, but I don't see that in the media coverage. Oh, yes, it's so expensive, and oh, yes, it's transforming. But the underlying tone is not that Biden is doing, you know, except for this, you know, very uh, trenchant observation in this New York Times analysis, that he didn't say he was going to do this, and now he's doing it. You know, how much of what he's proposing wouldn't have, already, wouldn't have been proposed by a President Bernie Sanders? Not a lot. In fact, he spent a fair amount of time talking to Bernie after his speech. He lingered. I think he was so happy to be back in the Capitol. You know, he's a legislator at heart. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, so let's move on to National Review. With the conservative point of view, the address was uh, connected only intermittently with reality. On his telling, every good thing that happened in America since he took office, from vaccination to job creation, is a tribute to his wisdom rather than a continuation of what happened beforehand. All presidents say such stuff, and they all get away with it. Uh, except Senator Tim Scott, who I'll come back to, made a valiant attempt to correct the record. Um, it goes through, National Review goes through a lot of things that Biden said and, um, you know, says, uh, you know, this is really expensive, this is not going to happen, and on and on and on. 
Even as he proposed one of the most radically left policy agendas in American history, he confirmed to feign an eagerness to work with Republicans. The press, which has invested absurd importance in every president's first 100 days, and that's true, uh, is hardly bothering to conceal its excitement at the low 50s approval rating Biden has at this marker. It is simultaneously hyping his left-wing legislative agenda. Those same polls show, however, says National View, that a plurality of Americans disapproves of how he is handling taxes and spending. And his numbers on guns and border security are abysmal. So we'll see how it plays out. All right, let me get to the Rudy story because this is pretty big. New York Times broke this story and then, you know, there were television cameras set up uh, outside of the apartment building where Rudy lives on Madison Avenue. Uh, He also has an office on Park Avenue. Federal investigators yesterday seizing cell phones and computers from Rudy Giuliani, um, who, at part of a criminal investigation into Giuliani's dealings in Ukraine, according to three people familiar with the investigation. Uh, This was about 6 a.m., but we didn't find out about it until later. The execution of search warrants is an extraordinary action for prosecutors to take against a lawyer, let alone a lawyer for a former president. Marked a major development, says the Times, in the long-running investigation into Rudy, uh, which examines some of the same people and conduct that were at the center of Trump's first impeachment trial, the one about Ukraine. Now, here's the thing that's just so stunning to me, because I've covered Rudy Giuliani for a long time. I covered him when he was Ronald Reagan's Associate Attorney General. That's the number three position in DOJ. I was in New York and covered him when he was U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York in Manhattan. He used to go to his press conferences. He was the one who approved search warrants with, obviously, an okay by a federal judge. He was the one uh, who was going after the mob, was going after corruption and wrongdoing among New York City politicians. He was the one who was the crime-fighting crusader. Now it's his old office, the same U.S. Attorney's office down in Lower Manhattan, investigating Rudy Giuliani. Now, Giuliani put out a statement denying any wrongdoings. He said this was demonstrated a corrupt double standard on the part of the Biden Justice Department, which had ignored blatant crimes by Democrats, he says, including Hillary Clinton and President Biden. Well, that's obviously a bit of whataboutism. His lawyer, Robert Costello, said this was legal thuggery. Well, actually not thuggery because you can't search somebody's home or business without the approval of a judge. And, um, you know, so what is Giuliani being investigated for? Some of this had to do with uh, his dealings with uh, officials in Ukraine, including the former president, Petro Poroshenko, and two former Ukrainian prosecutors who helped him dig up dirt on candidate Joe Biden. So part of it would be a... um, a charge of illegal lobbying. If you're going to lobby or try to influence U.S. policy on behalf of a foreign government, and there was talk of a deal that would have brought Rudy hundreds of thousands of dollars, he ended up not doing it, uh, at least according to him. Um, Then if you don't file as a foreign agent, you are violating federal law. These are serious charges, but it's not on the level of you know, uh, some kind of treason or something beyond that or some kind of bribery. Now, fascinating to me is that the U.S. Attorney's Office wanted to do this last year, but the political appointees, top political appointees in Bill Barr's Justice Department blocked the warrants. When Merrick Garland became Attorney General, 
the Justice Department in Washington lifted its objections to what the Southern District in New York wanted to do. It's more unusual, I would say, for Maine Justice, as it's called here in D.C., to block one of the U.S. Attorney's Office from doing something, um, and less controversial in a way, uh, to just say, well, go ahead. Because you can't, as the Times story points out, you can't get a search warrant from court unless investigators can show a judge they have sufficient reason to believe that a crime was committed and the search would turn up evidence of the crime. Now, Rudy Giuliani is presumed innocent. There's been no charges filed against him. Maybe at the end of this investigation, there will be no charges filed against him. But this is, make no mistake, really serious stuff. And it was those two Soviet-born guys who were sort of helping Rudy try to find stuff on Hunter Biden, Lev Parnes, and Igor Fruman. A lot of this just sort of brings back a lot of those names and all of the stuff that is at the heart of the first impeachment trial of Donald Trump. As he was pressuring Ukrainian officials to investigate the Bidens, Rudy became fixated on removing the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Yovanovitch, and in fact, he ultimately did convince President Trump to recall her as the envoy to Kiev. Also yesterday, search warrant was executed against Victoria Tunsing. She also was a federal prosecutor. She was the head of the criminal division in Ronald Reagan's Justice Department. I've known her that long. Uh, she and her husband, Joe DeGeneva, um, who was a former U.S. attorney here in D.C., uh, became big allies of Donald Trump, uh, became advocates and sort of informal advisors to President Trump. They were on Fox News a lot, defending President Trump, particularly on this Ukraine stuff. Uh, Victoria Tunsing has also reprimanded uh, the uh, Ukrainian oligarch Dmitry Firtash, who is under indictment in the U.S., uh, now, the fact that her home was searched in Washington uh, or in Maryland doesn't mean anything. Um, yeah, I mean, it means a great deal. What I'm saying is it doesn't mean she's going to be charged. It means that prosecutors were able to persuade a judge again. There was reason to believe um, that there's potentially some crime that she committed. Uh, but I don't want to rush the judgment on any of this. Still, it's just amazing to me as somebody who has known these people and covered them for so long. And Rudy, of course, the former mayor of New York City, uh, the, the if not the target of this investigation, certainly a prime subject of this investigation. Uh, I want to come back to Tim Scott. I thought he gave, uh, Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, I thought he gave a pretty good speech. It's very hard to do, do the response to the State of the Union or the presidential address. Uh, because you're not in the Hall of Congress, you're standing there with some flags. And I thought he was pretty relaxed and did well. You may have liked what he said, you may not have liked what he said. Interesting to me, because I've talked on the podcast about this, what I thought was a totally baseless Washington Post fact-check column uh, that went after Senator Scott, uh, who talks about how his grandfather left elementary school to pick cotton, and here he is, a United States senator, wasn't able to disprove any of that, but went back to his great great-grandfather buying some land to kind of suggest that his family was not as poorly situated as was reality. Well, uh, Scott actually responded to that. He brought it up in his speech. Senator Scott said, I get called Uncle Tom and the N-word by progressives, by liberals. Just last week, a national newspaper suggested my family's poverty was actually a privilege because a relative... Uh, bought land generations before my time. 
Well, as a result of that and his speech saying America is not a racist country, but he's not denying that there's racism in America. He talks about being called the N-word and being called Uncle Tom. He talks about, uh, he's meeting today with George Floyd's brother. He's been trying to broker a police reform compromise on Capitol Hill. Well, some liberals went after him by calling him on Twitter, Uncle Tim. Get it? Get the play on words? In other words, racist attacks from the left on Senator Scott, which I just think is deplorable, but there were enough of them that they were trending. I mean, seriously. Um, And so trending on Twitter about 11 hours later, Twitter finally blocked that trend. Didn't block the tweets, but it blocked the trend. Here's what a Twitter spokesperson says. This is in line with our policies on trends. We want trends to promote healthy conversations on Twitter. This means that at times we may not allow or may temporarily prevent content from appearing in trends until more context is available. Uh, you don't really need more context. Um, this is just a slur against Tim Scott. Um, author Amy Siskind. Tim Scott says America is not a racist country. Not sure how this man lives with himself. Well, you know what? You can criticize Tim's speech. He's in the arena. You can go after Tim Scott. I've never met Tim Scott, but uh, you can say this was a bad speech. He shouldn't have criticized Biden on this, that, or the other thing. He's in the arena. But Uncle Tom, Uncle Tim, is this how progressives want to fight their battles? I mean, it's disgusting. It's revolting. And uh, I'm glad that Twitter took action because Twitter obviously is known, having bad Donald Trump, having taken down or blocked or... I refuse to allow, for example, that New York Post story on Hunter Biden to be shared by anybody is known for mostly going after the right. And here, in effect, belatedly perhaps, coming to the defense of a Republican senator. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you're staying safe, got the vaccine, getting the vaccine, telling other people to get the vaccine. Numbers are coming down. That's good. But we've got to keep up this fight. You can subscribe right here on your Amazon device. It begins with A or on Google Podcasts, Apple iTunes, and we'll see you tomorrow with more BuzzFeed. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.